Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Well, welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus uh, from Family Wealth and Legacy here in Rochester, New York. And we have an awesome show to you today. Um, we have two incredibly wonderful guests and thought leaders in the areas of family business and communication within the family business, um, Susan Schoenfeld and Jane Bettle. And I really appreciate both of you joining us today. Welcome. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So what I typically do, we, we love to have a little bit of a moment to um, ask about your journey. Um, people that end up in this world of serving family-owned businesses and, and families of you know, affluence, typically you didn't start there. It's not like you went to college and got a degree in family dynamics and said, I'm jumping in. I can't wait to do this. So tell us about your journey, if you would, and, uh, and introduce yourselves. Jane, would you mind kicking us off? Be happy to. Thanks again, Michael. It's great fun to talk with you, and I always enjoy being with Susan, whatever we might be doing together. So my journey, interestingly, started a long time ago. I'm feeling very old when I say this. But way back when, when I was in a joint degree program in law school and a master's degree program in public policy analysis at the University of Pennsylvania, my advisor and I had to come up with a concentration for the master's program. And we came up with, and this is 1981, we came up with conflict resolution. And it was honestly, it was almost, ah, it's a phrase we've heard somewhere. Today, I could go get a degree in that. But my interest was strong way back when, and it continues to be. I find it fascinating how we get ourselves into the mess we get into in conflict and how to get ourselves out. So that is the journey that led me in the direction where I am today. As you both know, the idea of families trying to balance what they care about in the family, what they care about in the wealth, the legacy, an operating business or a business that is no longer operating there is a lot of opportunity for conflict. And I take great satisfaction in helping folks deal with the conflict, get better, on, get better at dealing with themselves as well as helping them as a neutral third, third party. I love it. Thank you for sharing. I uh, look forward to hearing some more about the, the conflict resolution side of uh, what you bring to the table. I think regardless of wealth, um, all families, you know, uh, are prone to having some form of conflict happening. And uh, when there is wealth or a business or something that's emotionally charged, um, it probably magnifies that. So we'll, we'll hear some more from Jane. Susan. In 
Uh, thank you again, Michael, for having me, and I'm delighted to be here with you and Jane today. I describe myself as a recovering trust and estates attorney and CPA. After I left the active practice of law, I worked for 14 years as fiduciary counsel at a white shoe trust company that catered to ultra high net worth families, where I created, developed, and facilitated a series of women and wealth workshops that were designed to explore the personal issues of wealth. Issues like how do I raise my family in an atmosphere of wealth and still have them turn out to be productive members of society. And issues like how do I protect my family's hard earned wealth, whether it comes from the family business, from the bum who's going to marry my child and might become a creditor of my family one day. Ultimately, that led me to leave the trust company and first work with a $600 million single family office where they had just had a liquidity event of, of their family owned business. And I was family ambassador for that $600 million family. And then in 2013, I launched my consulting firm, Wealth Legacy Advisors, based here in New York City where I serve as thought partner to families, family businesses, and family offices, and their trusted advisors on what I like to call the issues that keep people up at night, issues of governance, legacy, stewardship, next generation, and philanthropy. Even though I'm still a member of the bar, I don't practice law or give any legal advice. Even though I'm a CPA, I don't give any accounting advice or tax advice. I give no investment advice and I sell no product. What I provide is strictly, as I said, thought part thought partnership to families of wealth on the human issues of wealth that matter the most to them. In addition, I'm a keynote speaker to financial services firms about these issues of legacy and stewardship. Wonderful. I appreciate it. Um, of course, the uh, in this world of COVID, we're not sitting in soundproof studios. Um, and my neighbors are having their lawn done right now. So if anybody can hear anything, please let me know. Um, I want you, so today we're talking about communication in the family business. And at the end of the day, you know, I think that the families that um, can learn to communicate at a very high level, you know, where the emotional intelligence is high, um, it really makes a giant difference in, you know, where they can go and what they can, can um, propel themselves towards. Um, so that's the, the title of today's show, Communication in the Family Business. And we've got a couple of, you know, pieces that Susan and Jane and I had talked about. And so, you know, let's just dive right in. And Susan, you know, why don't you, you know, kick us off. Um, why is it so tough to discuss the business or the wealth? Um, and, you know, I, you know we, we put it out there and said, you know, sometimes talking about those things is tougher than the birds and bees conversation, you know. Why is that? And what happens if you don't talk about it? Talking about the wealth is scary. There is no, um, there's no getting around that. It is often said to me that families would rather have the dreaded sex talk with their kids than the even more dreaded money talk with their kids. It is, it is a scary thing. And my favorite quote on the topic of communication comes from George Bernard Shaw, who said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. 
And why I love that quote so much is because it really conveys just how much um, and how hard it is to talk about these types of things and how we think we have communicated so much more with our kids than we have. Um, the other the other side of that, the corollary to that, is that some parents say to me, my kids have no idea that we'll, we're wealthy. And, you know, what, what I say back to them is you're just fooling them yourselves. The money is the elephant in the room. You know, there's this wonderful thing out there called the Internet. Maybe you've heard of it. Right? Of course, our, our listeners are, are using it right now to um, to listen to this broadcast. Kids Google their parents. They Zillow their house to see what it's worth. They see how you live. They see how you travel back when we traveled before COVID. Kids at school talk. And of course, at Thanksgiving dinner, when all the parents are downstairs chatting over coffee and dessert, when the kids are all upstairs talking with their cousins. Well, even if you haven't told your kids about the wealth, but your brother-in-law has, guess what? Now your kids know. Um, or or guess what, you know, they're, they're about to find out from the kids at school. So it is, it is foolhardy to pretend that the wealth doesn't exist. A much more realistic approach is to, in age-appropriate ways, and we can get into this as, as the conversation develops, in age-appropriate ways, talk about the wealth to the children. If there is an active family business, invite them in on school vacations or summer vacations to work in the, in the family business so that they can begin to appreciate an understanding of the responsibility that accompanies the privilege of their wealth. The um, the one thing that that I hear all the time is the the knock on millennials these days is they live in a world where Facebook went from zillion you know from zero to a bazillion dollars in five minutes and they think that's how it's done but that's not true the, the young people today are craving more information and more education and a better grounding in in who they are and what their identity is so it really behooves the parents whether over the course of time in age appropriate ways or in the course of a family meeting in a facilitated way to have structured intentional conversations with your kids because just like the sex talk if you don't have that conversation with them they're going to find out anyway yeah i knew that was going to happen jane um anything that you'd like to add to what susan was saying I certainly agree with all of it. And because my focus is conflict, helping people prevent it and then deal with it if it crops up. And I'm using the shorthand of negative conflict, which is the part we talk about so frequently, not the more positive idea of conflict as a source of collaboration and creativity. The best part to my mind is, the best part of what Susan was touching on is starting and continuing. Best of all, when it's not one big conversation, but starting and continuing, including on issues that are very difficult. And the kids will ask, and they need to understand. Similarly, if you are having a situation where there are siblings who are spread out geographically, or not everyone gets along well, or if there is a situation where there are cousins, keeping people in the loop, even a little bit, it, what, in whatever mode works for your family can help a great deal. 
when something difficult comes along because then you have some basis of communication instead of, oh, by the way, we haven't actually connected in five years, but I need to tell you right now that something really awful is happening. That would be very difficult to handle. Agreed. You know, it's, it's funny when we talk about, you know, the numbers and, you know, I've been working with family businesses for 20 years and so often, you know, it's not just inside of the family, but it's the employees, you know, and, and Susan, to your point, you know, you can go out and, you know, get it done in Bradstreet on a company. You know what a, what a company is worth and the, the kind of sales volume that's out there. And people are like, oh, I'm not sharing those numbers. We're not talking about, you know, ev you know what are you taking in salary or every single thing that you're doing. But if you're running an equity style business where you're trying to grow equity, you better share those numbers. If you're growing a lifestyle business, and you're just doing this for you and your immediate family, that's different. And, you know, I would imagine that you probably don't want to share, share those things. But I think the vast majority of people, especially in the family business, are looking to make that leap from that lifestyle business to the, you know, grow the equity, make sure that we're doing this the right way. And it's good communication um, with the family and throughout the organization probably makes an awful lot of sense. So... Um, this is good stuff and I, I appreciate it. Um, Jane, when we talk about family conflict, why don't you start diving in talking about, you know, what is the good, you know, you talk about good conflict, bad conflict and the ugly conflict. So let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> well, let's start with the ugly because that's always the fun, entertaining part and the place no family would ever want to be. That's what makes movies and TV shows and great books. And back when everyone read a newspaper that was made of paper, front page news, or maybe the style section, because it's gossip worthy. No one wants to be there. That's the sort of thing where all the dirty laundry is out. When we're talking about communication, we're certainly not talking about that. And there's always an undercurrent there of someone trying to... Um, make someone else look bad, make themselves look good. There, there's a motivation behind the ugly conflict usually. Now we'll back up for a moment to the bad. The bad is what we focus on. It's what people talk about generally when they say conflict. They think it's always bad. It is, some would say, inevitable. I would disagree. It is insurmountable once it takes hold. I thoroughly disagree with that idea. Sometimes it is simply the fact that we have different perceptions, we have different needs, we have different life experiences, we have different expectations. And where the communication part comes in is if I think I know what your ideas are, and I assume from my beliefs, things that aren't true, things that are unduly negative, better that we have a conversation and we find ways to honor each other's intentions, expectations, and needs, and then move on into a more positive type of conflict that I call good conflict. And that is the collaborative and creative type. That's where innovation comes from. If we all thought exactly the same, there would be no new ideas. It would be too difficult to try to understand well, where would we go from here? Because we're in lockstep. We don't know what to do now. 
But the spark of imagination is, to my mind, good conflict. But you need to have the communications. You need to be open to those new ideas to allow them to come forward. Love it. It's um, Brene Brown is big on, you know, out there right now. And if um, my team and I read one of her books, we love the word rumble. And, you know, we, the, that word for us means good conflict because, you know, it's, you don't have to agree. We have to get these, we have to get these thoughts out there. And um, I'm one of those D type personalities. I'm a DI, which means, you know, for me that, you know, I like to win um, and I want to talk about it <laughs> and, and other people might not get their words in. And so it's, you know, a real chore for me to remember to sit back and listen because some of the best stuff is when people don't agree with me. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And Michael, may I share something that I find interesting, which is the assessment tool that you're talking about. Well, known, not nearly as well known is a tool that I recently became certified to use as a practitioner. And that is called the conflict dynamics profile. Okay. Based, based on research done at the mediation training Institute, and they are quite clearly focused based on their research on behaviors, not personalities, not styles, in part because it is easier for us regular people to focus on one or two of our behaviors that are not so good, like eye rolling would be near the top of everyone's list, I think, and to try to get that under control. And the flip side of that is to get better at using the good behaviors that we have, but quite interesting and not very well known. Appreciate it. Susan, you want to chime in on what you see in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, family conflict? The good, the bad, and the ugly of family conflict. Well, the, the ugliest is, in my experience, generally around marital disputes, which I know is not something that Jane, um, and good for her, it's not something that she, um, she, she likes to do. Um, when I think about prenuptial agreements and I think about guiding families around the issues of prenuptial agreements, I tend not to delve too deeply into the legality of it. The, the things that the lawyers will tell you, like make sure each party is separately represented and make sure that there's full disclosure and all those sorts of legal things. When I tried to guide families around prenups, not surprisingly, I tried to guide them in the area of communication because the, the image that stays with me is a, a long married couple after 42 years of marriage where the wife turned to her husband in my office and said, your mother never trusted me because 42 years ago, they made me sign that stinking prenup agreement. And for 42 years of marriage, she held a grudge against her long deceased in-laws. So sure, by all means, make sure there's full financial disclosure, make sure there's um, all the different things that the lawyer is going to tell you. But the most important thing is to make sure that 
There's plenty of time for both parties to consider the pros and the cons. Make sure all of this happens long before the wedding invitations go out. We all know that that story of, of Barry Bonds, who um, allegedly in the limo on the way to the wedding, tossed a prenup into his intended's lap and said, if you don't sign it, the wedding is off. And, you know, of, of course, that was deemed to be uh, undue duress. And, and the the agreement was set aside. The main thing really for parents for whom having a prenup is going to be part of the expectation for their children is to make sure that that expectation is on the table before your kids even hit dating age because then it's not personal. Then it's not you never like this person I'm about to marry, but no matter who you marry, whether it is someone vastly less wealthy than we, or even someone vastly wealthier than we are, it is something that we are going to insist on. A corollary to that, and one I have seen work particularly well if there's more than one child, is to encourage your children to enter into a pact among themselves with each other, that no matter who they marry, as an element of responsible stewardship of the family's wealth, they are going to make sure they all have prenups before they get married. And then it's not personal to the dreaded, you know, mother-in-law, but rather it's something that we're all doing as siblings to, to act as responsible siblings. And I've seen that work really well. So again, like Jane, my focus is on communication. It's on conflict avoidance before it happens. And it, it's not so much on the legalities because there are practicing lawyers who are going to be better advisors on that. But rather, I, I can help families before, the, um, before it turns ugly, enter into some of these potentially ugly conversations. Love it. You know, what you, when you said that, it, go ahead, Jane. Just you, you, so got, true. It's, your turn. I love it. It's the, um, and I, ha I have seen an instance just jumps to mind where, of course, I'm hearing all of this third hand at best, but the intended is so offended that this topic has come up. And it's far, far in advance. There's no wedding date. It is way in advance. So that part went well. But the adult child of the family. And in this instance, there was not a, an operating family business, but there was enough wealth that the family had had conversations with the children very early on that that adult child was able to say to the intended, this has nothing to do with you. I knew about this long before I met you. So just to what Susan was saying, if you get it out there before they can meet that perfect love match, then, then that, that person is in the position to say, I guarantee it's nothing to do with you. I've known about this for so long, long before I knew you. Love it. Yeah, you know, it, what makes me, the, the, the phrase that comes to mind is, when is the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. And so, you know, it, it's, it's coming, through, coming up with and thinking about what are all the what ifs? What are, all the, what are all the conversations that if we don't have them, have the ability to undermine all of the work and trust and the things that, we, that we've built up within our family? And again, I'll go back and say with the employees as well, um, most family owned businesses, 
you know, we think of our employees as family. Um, and, and that's, you know, makes, makes a big difference. And so you, you really want to be doing those things. I remember years ago, and I'll share this, you know, um, I was new in the business and lacked confidence in what I was doing. And I made a mistake. I screwed up with a client, something went wrong. And um, I made the very immature mistake of blaming it on my team. And when I did that, somebody overheard me do it. And they sat me down in the office and they, you know, they had been around um, as admin for the family for longer than I was involved in the business. And she sat me down with the door closed and read me the riot act. And I was like, it was a very maturing moment for me because I made sure that it never ever happened again. And um, it took me a while to regain that trust. And, and so it's really important that these conversations and how you do things, um, you know, and like in our team, what do we say? We, it's okay to come to the team with egg on your face. You know, it's okay to make mistakes, but own it. Um, so that's, I appreciate what you're saying. Any other stories that pop into your mind about, you know, families where they surprise you with the good work that they're doing? And what are, and maybe an example of, you know, some of the things that they were doing proactively that uh, jumped, jump in your mind. Anything come to mind? I'll jump. One family in particular was so keen on the idea of people staying connected and they made it a commitment and they, they grew, they were not a tiny family in G1, but they grew and they grew and they were all over the place. Most were in the United States. Everyone spoke English as a first language. That made things a little easier. But they decided they'd have a family newsletter that was not, it wasn't about the business particularly. It touched on well, public news about the business, fun things. But what mattered was that if you had some news to share, you were invited to share it. And one of the older members of the family took responsibility for distributing this, I can't recall now, three or four times a year, maybe something like that. And it was not fancy, but the younger kids, as soon as they were able to read, it's like, oh, okay, here it comes. And it brought them into the idea of we are a family. And they had a family business that had the family name in it. So that kind of helped this idea of this is ours, this is our family, this is our business but they kept that connectedness going in a very low key fashion. It really helped kind of build and cement the bonds of people who did not see each other in person very often. And this is long before COVID, but it was important to them. That's a great story, Jane. And, and to that point, when I facilitate family meetings, one of the first things that I like to do in family meetings is to go around the table and encourage each participant at the meeting to share some news of what has happened in their lives or their children or their grandchildren's lives that the other family members might not necessarily know about or perhaps to go into more detail and more depth about 
things that people do know about. So in a family meeting that I facilitated right before COVID happened, it was actually in February, we went around the table and people not only talked about, they started off talking about the, the charity work they're doing or what's doing with their kids and grandkids, but then they got into some deep, dark stuff. They started talking about what they're afraid of and what's stressing them out. And that encouraged other people to talk about what was stressing them out. And it turned into this beautiful bonding moment among a family that, that surely loves each other. They don't talk all that often. They're on, um, they're in different time zones, but they were able to really bond over things that they hadn't expected to talk about. The meeting was ostensibly to talk about something very specific about the family business, and it turned into a much deeper connecting moment for everyone. That's great. It's, um, you know, the, Susan, we're going to talk some more about, you know, family meetings and why they should be facilitated. Um, and so in, in a second, but we just finished a, um, a facilitated family meeting and it was really unique. You, you'll, you'll appreciate this. The family across the board, except for two people who voted to say yes. And everybody just said, okay, they were so afraid of this family meeting. They did not want to do it. It was the very first time. And it was like, you know, when we walk, when we walked to where the family was on the day when we got everybody together, um, it felt like we were death coming to see them. It was, it was so extreme, you know? And so what was amazing is one of the things that we wanted to do was introduce the business to the kids. And, you know, again, going back about being intentional and, and helping people to understand that there's another way of, you know, doing things, not just always about, you know, the family getting together, having a picnic, having fun, sometimes doing a little bit of work today will, you know, spread, you know, make things easier in the future. Nine-year-old kid is watching the video of what the family does and looks at it and goes, who does that? And then, so, you know, we had to turn that kid around and, 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 and make everybody raise their hand. And they were all like, oh my gosh, how did they not know that that's what we do? And she's like, that's so cool. And so just like these little moments that happen through facilitated family meetings where somebody that just can be a little bit more intentional, we'll talk more about that. I don't want to take any, you know, those things away from you. Um, but it just made me talk about good things happening. And here was a family that was really afraid. The conflict, the, the level of conflict avoidance was so high that they didn't want to do anything. So you get that. Um, how about, let's talk about one of Susan's favorite topics, which is the equal and equitable challenge within families and, you know, um, the secrets to navigating through that stuff. Do you want to guide open that up a little bit? So I call it the equal versus equitable debate because fair doesn't always mean equal and equal doesn't always mean equitable. So parents tend to give to their children based on their needs and that's appropriate. So if one child is attending junior college and the other is going to med school, they're going to have different financial needs. If one child lives in the Midwest where the stand, uh, the cost of living is, is perhaps less expensive and the other is here in New York City, the needs are going to be different. If one child be, 
becomes a member of the clergy or an inner city school teacher or a nonprofit employee, and the other child becomes a reality star or a um, one of those rarefied sports figures, well, then their needs are going to be different. And in fact, um, chances are one child may very well need help making their monthly rent and the other child the last thing they want is gifts from their parents because they're doing their own creditor protection planning. But at the end of the day, when you treat your children unequally, you risk that age-old um, aphorism, mom, mom or dad loved you better, which every sibling has said at least once to their, to their siblings. But grandchildren are different. So consider this example. Mom and dad have two kids, um, and it's, it's fairly straightforward. They want to treat their kids equally. So the son gets half and the daughter gets half. Uh, but what happens when they have children themselves and the daughter has one child and the son has three children? What do the grandparents do? Do they say, well, I have four grandchildren. I'm going to treat them equally and each grandchild gets 25%, maybe. And a lot of grandparents do say that. Or do they say, no, I have two branches of children, and so my daughter's branch is going to get 50%, and my son's branch is going to get 50%. So my daughter's daughter gets her whole 50%, and my son's three children split their father's 50%, and they end up getting one-sixth each. Is that fair? Maybe. Um, my my argument is that it's not up to us as advisors to make that decision for our clients it is our job as advisors to ask the families what it is they want to do there's no right answer the only right answer is to ask the question so that you can decide for yourself and I guarantee that nine out of 10 lawyers never discuss this with their clients. It's just baked into the boilerplate in their documents. So that's part of the equal versus equitable debate. The other part of it is, is what we talked about earlier, the, the children who have different needs. So true story, um, mom and dad had two daughters and let's call them Jenny and Sally. And when they were kids, Jenny and Sally were inseparable. They were very close sisters. But as life developed, Jenny became um, financially very successful in her career. She married someone even more financially successful. She had two lovely children who grew up and were healthy and happy, and she lived very nicely. Her sister Sally, on the other hand, was, was one of those unfortunate ones. She suffered from lifelong illnesses. She never really got an education. She never married. She was never happy. And ultimately, when mom and dad passed away, they said, or one can only assume they said, Jenny is financially successful, Sally needs our money, and they left everything to Sally without telling Jenny about it. So what do you think happened? Well, Jenny was left with all of these feelings of my parents didn't love me, they didn't trust me, I never even got the opportunity to select personal items that, that would have been mementos for me, sentimental items, it all went to my sister, and I never had an opportunity to have 
a conversation with my parents about this. And it, it was, it, unfortunately, it caused a lifelong rift between Jenny and Sally and these two sisters who had been so close as children never spoke again. And unfortunately, and, and truly tragically, to make a sad story even sadder, uh, about a year later, Sally, the, the sister who had been ill, succumbed to her lifelong illnesses and she passed away. And she left all of her parents' money that she had inherited instead of to her sister or to her sister's children. She left it to a distant cousin. Oh. And so now poor Jenny is not only heartbroken, she just lost her parents. Now she lost her sister. She lost the opportunity to ever have a conversation with her sister about all of these things. She also lost the opportunity to pass on to her kids the harder earned wealth that her parents had created. And she saw it go to this distant cousin. And she was left with, with this um, guilt and, and all of the emotions that you can imagine. And so the, the moral of that story, as I see it, is that bequests are messages from those who are no longer here. So please be, be careful and, and be sure you convey the message that you intend. And if you are treating your children either unequally or how they might perceive as inequitably or unfairly, please be sure to have those conversations before it's too late. Because at the end of the day, as hard as it is to have those conversations, just imagine the pain that could have been avoided had Jenny and Sally's parents had those conversations with her. Like I said earlier, it is not easy, and that is why facilitated conversations over the course of a family meeting are a, a somewhat more emotionally removed or sanitized way of doing it without, um, without really the acrimony that, that truly could have been avoided in this case. Michael, I would add, absolutely, and, and such, a, such a stark and sad story. Another idea, and this is something that we talked about earlier, and, and Susan was mentioning the context of kids. Do they, do they not know something if we don't tell them? I think it's safe to say we've all heard that nature abhors a vacuum. That's true about human nature as well as the more general nature. So in these instances where mom and dad make a decision to whatever, whatever decision they make. And someone should, would say that's terribly unfair that it was equal because one has far more in resources than the other. Or the, uh, the classic of the hedge fund kid who has so much money and the social worker sibling. And because mom and dad decide to give more to the social worker, the hedge fund kid says, hmm, I've been punished for being successful. The parents, sometimes shy away too much from the conversation because they feel as if they're giving over decision-making power. That's not the same as we have reached this, this decision and we want you to know what it is. Now, for some, even that is too much. The fear of Thanksgiving is so great, they would not allow Susan with all of her talents to have a peaceful, calm, facilitated family meeting. Like, nope, we can't touch that. It's too terrifying. Now, some I have heard successful lawyers say, those parents are cowards. I don't think I'd go that far and not sure that labels help. But if that is too much, 
for a family, for the parents. What else could you do? You could at the very least write down something, something as simple as we love you both. We always have. This is the basis of our decision. We're not asking you to necessarily agree, but we want you to know what it is. Instead of assuming, because I'm hurt, that my sibling tricked mom and dad somehow, or told them something that was not quite true, or pressured them, or who knows what it is. But giving a reason can prevent that really unnecessary conflict from rearing its ugly, or at least bad, head. Perfect. I, you know, what it's making me think of as you two are, you know, giving some examples and talking about, you know, this, the, the area of equal versus equitable and just talking about things. Um, I know, Jane, you were in the, the, at the PPI rendezvous a couple weeks ago. Susan, I don't know if you were there or not, um, but there was a, a woman did a conversation about her, and I, I'm going to simplify this as best I can. Um, they were just talking about in this world of COVID that, you know, what if, what if? And, you know, her daughter um, said, hey, mom, you know, I want to share this will that I wrote, you know, and it was, Jane, I don't know if you heard that or not. Yeah. It was Dawn Gross. She was fabulous a year ago when we were all in person, and she was fabulous again when we were all virtual. And the, 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 the statement of purposeful was, you know, obviously portrayed or, you know, given to her daughter, and the will was beautiful. It wasn't just, I'm giving this to here, and, you know, when we write a will today, they're so dry. They're so legal. And, you know, I, you know, really work hard to, if nothing else, name the trust that you're creating and put, you know, put a great name to it. So it says something. It's not just coming from, you know, the John E. Smith and Mary E. Smith life insurance trust, you know, um, you know, I have one trust that a, that a client created and the name of the trust is anything but a dirt bike. And I love that one. It said so much. And the attorney rolled his eyes at me when, you know, we, when we named it. Um, but, you know, that message from, you know, from grandma someday or great grandma someday to those out there, they're going to say, why is it named anything but a dirt bike? And that message of, I believe you can do anything. You can, there's nothing that you can't do, but don't take unnecessary risks. You know, don't be silly. And that, that was her message to her boys as they were growing up. And she wanted that message to be portrayed. And so I, you go back and I, you know, you're talking about having these discussions with people. And if nothing else, write it. And if you can't put it into the will because the attorney won't do that, then write a letter to your family and let them know how you feel and what you were thinking when you were doing what you were doing. Um, so important. Michael, can I, I we go ahead, Susan? I I encourage families to write. It could be a letter. It could be what sometimes lawyers call a memorandum of wishes. It is not necessarily and often is not legally binding, but it is emotionally relevant. And I encourage families to put in there what they were thinking about, their hopes, their fears, their desires, their, you know, the things that go bump in the night for them, the things that 
can't go in a cold, dry legal document of 100 pages that's filled with legalese that's intended to accomplish certain tax aims. And, and that's all necessary and relevant. But what goes into a memorandum of wishes could be a, a direction to the trustees to distribute or not distribute under certain circumstances. Uh, it could be a an explanation to your family members of why I did what I did and what I was thinking about. It could be a, um, a narrative about how your grandfather and I came over to this country on a boat and we started a corner store and it, it grew and, and now it's Whole Foods or, you know, or whatever, fill in the blanks. Um, but it could, the narrative of the hard work and the fire in the belly and, and the value system that created the wealth that you, my grandchildren, are now enjoying is, is part of the family culture. And it is, it is something that I encourage families to do intentionally because every child growing up loves to hear stories about their parents or the grandparents to develop their own sense of identity. So why shouldn't the wealth creator fashion that and create that in a way that they want to be repeated over and over as part of their family story and map it out for future generations to identify with and have a better sense of who are we as a member of, of the Schoenfeld family? What does it mean to be a member of our family? Whether it's the, the grandchildren coming up or it's people marrying into our family. It is, it is part of the culture of who we are. Great. Michael, there's another topic that we haven't mentioned, but it's one that's as hard to talk about as money. And that, I'm going to say it out loud, it's death. And the potential for family destruction in not discussing end-of-life wishes and wishes for one's immediate after-death <laughs> dealings, as it were, what you would like your funeral service to be like, if you want one at all, whether you want cremation, whether you don't. If family members are left to guess because no one could ever have this conversation, the possibility that everyone is completely in sync about guessing mom's wishes is very tiny. That's not going to happen. Yeah. The damage that can be done to a functioning business because the, it's so hard to go back. There are many conflicts where somehow we can move on. You killed mom. That's not going to be an easy one. Um, <laughs> but mom, named me. And again, this is an opportunity for mom to do the right thing and say, I have made this decision and I have named this one of my adult children or someone else. And I know families where this has happened. They name someone who is a relative who is not a blood relative because they know that's the right person to make sure what needs to happen happens. But if that's not done, the potential for discord in that family and never walking it back is so great cannot encourage people enough. It's not easy, but we're all going to die. And I actually have said that word that begins with a D a couple of times. Even saying it is hard in our culture. Sure. Uh, but that's another piece, as you know, Michael, that Don Gross is very tuned into how important it is for families of wealth. And I would argue at least as important for families and family businesses, regardless of the level of wealth, because the anger and the estrangement can be so profound. 
need to do this. Yeah. And it's, you know, it goes right back into succession planning and, you know, transition. And if we're not, if we're avoiding that conversation, you know, what do they say? The two things that we know 100% are certain is death and taxes. Well, if you know that it's certain, you know, put it out there and say it and, and, and be okay with it. I love, um, my wife and I were Game of Thrones fans and we learned to love, you know, the dwarf uh, Tyrion Lannister. And one of the things that he said is, I call myself a dwarf so nobody else can take it away from me. So I would, you know, you can't punish me with that. You can't hurt me with that. So if you don't want to be afraid of death, then just look it in its face and talk about it, right? Um, and it's not easy. I, I'm not, I don't want to minimize for some families and some cultures in particular, it is really, really tough. And that may be where an outsider can help. Yeah. Help have that conversation and explain why it matters and that decisions need to be made. That's the other piece of it. Um, when Susan was talking about this idea of equal and um, equitable and what does it all mean, I was asked to be involved once with a what was ironic as a state planning attorney who had retired and his wife, the person who had been, uh, the lawyer had been a mentor to the person who brought me in. These two were paralyzed in their own estate planning, knowing that it had to happen because they couldn't make a decision about this in yeah. part because one of the adult children was estranged and, oh, but maybe he'll come back. Oh boy. So until then, we'll do nothing. That was a tough conversation, but we needed to have it and we did have it. And we managed to create a plan that they could follow that would take the guilt away and also allow them to reach a decision that would then create some certainty for the other family members. Nice. That's yeah, super important that you, that you say that. Um, I think as I'm thinking about that, one of the things that pops into my head is, um, and I'm having a moment, I apologize, it doesn't happen often, I'm tongue-tied. Um, so on that tongue-tie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my gears. I think that's what I, I had two thoughts going at the same time, and one was competing heavier than the other. We, we called this, you know, we, we named this communication in the family business. Um, I'm curious if there was a book or a tool or something that you would say, you know, above all else, this is a great read. You're going to, you're going to learn some great things from this, you know, aside from, you know, listening to more of this podcast, of course, um, what are some of the tools that, uh, you know, families can learn from and maybe, you know, put into action, you know, today, what, where would you point them towards? Either of you have a favorite book or tool that, you know. Well, I would always start with Jay Hughes and, and his, um, his writings. That is, it is always the starting point in my recommendations to families. Perfect. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for, for James Hughes. Um, I read his book and was so moved that I called him and said, you know, can I schedule some time to talk to you. And he's like, absolutely. And he's just so giving and so wonderful. He's very and, generous. Yeah. Yes. And then he said, now you need to do me a favor and you need to meet John A and you need to join the Purposeful Planning Institute. And that was the first year that John A was putting the Planning Institute together. 
Um, the book that I, you know, that's coming to mind for me is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. We're talking about family businesses and inside of the family business, you know, framework, you do have both family and non-family typically in many of the businesses that, you know, that we serve. And I just think that, you know, what Patrick Lencioni put together is a nice model for making sure that they understand that, you know, inside the business that you have to form that bond of trust. There has to be trust that, you know, it's okay to have a dumb idea. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have, you know, it's fostering that trust for what we called before that good conflict, right, Jane? Absolutely. And my thoughts go to the very basic. There are some wonderful theoretical books about conflict what causes it, and some fairly abstract ideas that are brilliant. But that's not what I would recommend to families. I would be much more practical on that. And that's my bent, frankly. I'm just, I prefer practical. I prefer positive. That's why my podcast is what it is. It's meant to be practical and positive. So I would just go back to the basic, getting to yes. It is an easy read. It applies to so many types of conflict. No one's going to be confused. One more time. I'm sorry. Getting to yes. Getting to yes. It Who's the author? Is the, the classic from uh, way back when. Well, now I'm going to have my brain freeze right now. Of course, That's I know okay. who it is, and I can't think of his name. That's okay. <laughs> it's on the shelf behind me, um, but it's um, it's been around for many years, and it is helpful in that it is not complicated, and it applies to so many things, so many situations. It would be conflict with your neighbor with uh, the person you work with, with the family member, with anyone at all. So that is one of the real beauties. Of course, I would agree on both of the books that you folks have mentioned. Perfect. And I think, I think also, um, I actually, now I shouldn't go out on a limb like this, but I'm going to try anyway. The last I knew, the Family Firm Institute's online publication called The Practitioner was open to non-members. And there are some interesting ideas there. They're quite short articles. They're not terribly lengthy. Some are somewhat academic, research oriented, but it's the sort of thing where someone could just dip in and take a look around. And they're always being added more and more all the time. Perfect. Author's name is Roger Fisher. Thank That's, you. Uh, you can tell. Nope. It's like, I, you know, it would come approximately sure. what, 12 or 13 seconds after we finished. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> So we've got a few minutes left. I want to make sure that we dive into understanding, you know, who's going to benefit from a facilitated meeting um, and talk about that a little bit, if you would. So when I think about facilitated family meetings, I like to break it down into the traditional journalism, who, what, when, where, why, and how model, because it, it really is a multifaceted conversation. So I like to start with the why. Why is it important to have a facilitated family meeting? And as we talked about earlier, it's often not comfortable to discuss the family's wealth, particularly if there's a family business involved, but at the end of the day, they know more than you realize. We, we talked earlier about Jay Hughes and his, his famous expression, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, the notion that 
um, the first generation creates the wealth, the second generation has watched their parents create the wealth and still has a sense of responsibility about it, but they want to raise their children without the hardships that perhaps they were raised with. And by the time they get to the third generation, they're back in short sleeves again, because um, whether it's from estate taxes or from the dilution of having more more mouths to feed and, and more people spending the money or or simply the the lack of the fire in the belly um, by the time they're they're at that third generation it it's largely all gone and so that's really why it's so important to talk about the wealth and to create and develop and define what your family's legacy is um, the what of a family meeting is the, it can be the family history. It can be the history of how the wealth was created. What it is not is the legal entities like the will, the trusts, the charitable foundation. Those memorialize the legacy plan but are not the family legacy statement itself. The how of family meetings, um, as we said, a professional facilitator may well ease the difficult conversations across the generations. It keeps everyone out of that sandbox behavior of mom or dad loved you better. And it keeps people more focused on what we're talking about today. And, and what I like to do is, is start with creating rules of the road. So it might be don't interrupt. It might be no eye rolling. It might be no sarcasm or, or sly glances. It, it, simple, um, make sure you turn off your cell phones is a good one. Um, so those sorts of rules of the road and having a professional facilitator there to hold people's feet to the fire and say, um, no, we're not going to interrupt what, um, what Sally is talking about. We're going to give her the, the opportunity. And most importantly, making sure that everyone there gets a chance to participate, that one person doesn't dominate, um, typically matriarch or patriarch, and that the, the black sheep of the family still gets a voice and still gets an opportunity to be heard. Because at the end of the day, family meetings are really all about multi-directional communication. So, um, very often, it, it there's a develop there's a deliverable which is a family constitution or family bylaws or family mission statement, but at the end of the day, the real deliverable is the process itself. The real deliverable is the conversation. Um, the last two um, journalism points. The first one is who. So who participates in the family meeting? Well, of course, that's up to the family members themselves. Typically, families will say to me, well, it's our bloodline only. It is my children and my grandchildren. But what I like to say to them is, you know, your children's spouses are the parents of your grandchildren. So if you leave them out of the discussion of what your family legacy is, what your family's mission, vision, and values are, then what kind of values are being passed on to your grandchildren if they don't have a hand in creating them? Because ultimately the biggest part of the who is invited is that, as I said, there needs to be multi-directional communication. So yes, while of course we're respecting the wishes of the matriarch and patriarch, we need to make sure we're involving every single person at that table in the conversations.
And the last point is the when. When do you do family meetings? Well, of course, my answer is it's never too early and it's never too late. Um, when your kids are little, you need to model your behavior because they're watching. You need to create age-appropriate teachable moments. But at the end of the day, um, some families like to do them quarterly. Some families do them annually. And the family who thinks that it's one and done, in my view, is, is really missing an opportunity to have a meaningful event that their family can look forward to. I've actually seen families that in their estate planning documents have endowed a family meeting or a family vacation after they're gone so that finances don't become a barrier to the family getting together at least once a year. That, I, I, on that note, I'm going to come back to Jane, but I just want to share something real quick. Next week's episode, I have Courtney Pullen coming in and he's facilitating that conversation between my parents who that's their so they have never they have no idea what this is going to be like we met they met with courtney for 30 minutes yesterday just to say you know what are you trying to pull michael what's going on tell me about this stuff and what um what they're going to do is just talk about the you know what's worked what hasn't um and at the end of the 30 minutes that we just did with courtney um, my mother said, oh, I'm so excited to do this. I felt like you and dad were, be, you know, were, were ganging up on me when we did the estate plan. Maybe we get a chance to do it all over. And I'm sitting there going, oh, that is not the way that this was supposed to, you know, to go. But so we're doing, it's a Petri dish. We have no idea what it's going to look like and what the conversation is going to be. And I told my parents they get final say in terms of whether it gets broadcast or not. So if you want to hear it, live would be the best way to do it, just in case uh, that my mom says, nope, you can't, you, can't, you can't put that out there, but it'll be fun. So speaking of facilitated family meetings and talking about the estate stuff, Jane, take us out, tell us a little bit about what was, you know, when you do family facilitated meetings, what do you see as the benefits and, you know, who benefits from doing this stuff and why? Often things are said that were not said at any other time. Mm -hmm. And in part because people have not had an opportunity to be heard, there has been someone who's been dominant, sometimes someone who's been a bully. And people will say to me, well, how am I going to get my thoughts across? I haven't been able to do that for 40 years. And I will explain that's part of my job is to make sure that you can speak. I wanna say one final thing in, in the context of where we are today, which is we do do things virtually now. And it's not all bad. I have had some experiences where family members had to say some very difficult things. And clearly it was easier for them to say them through a screen than if they had been in the same room. It's powerful. It really is. You know, it's, I, I say to people all the time, um, you know, COVID has taught us all a lot of things you know, we don't like the seclusion. We don't like a lot of the, the distancing and the, you know, things that come with this, but we have all, hopefully, not, not everybody, hopefully you, you've learned some things and you found the positives inside of here. This podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for COVID. Um, I wanted to serve the families that, you know, that we see and I wanted to add value to their lives to bring, you know, more thing, you know, more information to them, especially during this time, especially during this time. And, you know, so we, we started it. Um, 
how do people contact you if they want to contact you? Jane, would you share? I mean, do you mind sharing your website or links? Of course. Uh, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, but you do have to spell my name correctly. It's Jane Bettle. It's B-E-D-D-A-L-L. My company is Dovetail Resolutions, and through that, I offer mediation in ongoing relationships and conflict coaching. My podcast is called Crafting Solutions to Conflict. It comes out weekly. Episode 84, I believe, is the one that came out last week. And you can find that on all the major apps or on its own dedicated website. Great. Susan, how do people get a hold of you? So my, my company is Wealth Legacy Advisors. So my website is www.wlallc.com, as in Wealth Legacy Advisors, LLC. So wlallc.com. And that website is dedicated to my consulting business, helping families and family offices and family businesses with, as I like to call it, the issues that keep people up at night. In addition to that, I have a separate website for my speaking, my public speaking, and that's just my name, SusanSchoenfeld.com. So S-U-S-A-N-S-C-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D.com. Perfect. I'm going to, you know, I appreciate everybody coming and joining us today. This has been great. Um, I normally, you know, I, I didn't take any time to ask, allow people to ask any questions, but we've got the recording piece of the done, you know, done for the, the podcast. Um, Peter, Ralph, if either of you have any questions that you would like to pose to, you know, Susan, Jane, or myself, feel free to unmute yourself and uh, um, ask a question. Thanks. I'm all set. Thank you. Thanks, Ralph. I, I do have a question. I would just like to ask, you know, we're, we're a 30 year family business, original owner with two sons in the business and one daughter who's not. Any advice you have in regards to the one who's not, right? What, what did they get out of it? Because as the, uh, as the business grows in the, in the finances stay in the company, right? How do you, try to get that out in order to, again, hand down to, to, the, to the person who's not in the business. It's a real challenge. It is, um, it, it is far from a unique challenge, as you can imagine, Peter. The, the issue, of course, is that the wealth is tied up in the family business. So I'm guessing that you don't have an equal amount that you can leave to your daughter who's not involved in the family business. One way I have seen families navigate this, and it's relatively low tech, but it actually works quite well, is through life insurance. So that the children who are active in the family business get the business and they don't have necessarily the, to deal with the interference of their sibling who has a purely financial interest, um, but perhaps a non-voting interest in the business. And, and so you can equalize your daughter through life insurance. It's, it's not fancy, it's not sexy, but it, it certainly is one way to approach it. Another way, as I alluded to, is to issue non-voting stock to your daughter so that she can't per se interfere in the business, but she has a financial interest in the business. Um, but that, that breeds a lot of discontentment and a lot of um, dissent because you've got your sons who are in the business feeling like they're, they're doing all the work and she's getting all the money. So there's... The, 
that's not necessarily the optimal approach. My, my solution is either um, life insurance or some sort of other buyout situation so that they are not in business together after you're gone. Yeah, we, we yeah, right, and and that's kind of where we're we're leaning towards uh, assets and and insurance going one direction, um, uh, which seems to be the easiest way to to work it out. The other thing, though, as far as a non-voting share, um, being able to put stock out there that if the business was ever sold, they would get part of it. Without a doubt, that's that's certainly one way to make sure that your daughter, who is not active in the business, reaps that reward. Um, I will tell you that I have seen that backfire too, though, because your sons who are active in the business may resent the fact that their sister is getting a payday based on their efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Peter, so it com- comes back to communication, right? Always. Oh, yeah. Um, Peter, one of the things that, you know, my father did when we went through the transition, because I was the one that was in the business and I have three siblings that are not, um, and he made me buy the business. So I, you know, I, I, I write him a check when he retired and, um, I think I have six left right now. Um, and it was, it, it was really good for me and I, and I, you know, to do that. Um, because his wealth, you know, couldn't be tied up in the business and there's no reason for him to just gift it to me when there's three other kids. Um, and in your circumstance with two versus one, one, you know, one of the things that I just did with another family, that's just a creative idea for you is we used the, the, um, the boy, the, the, the kids that were in the business, they were the ones that paid for the life insurance policy on mom and dad as part of the buyout. Sure. Sure. Little, little creative. Yeah. Nothing to add except that talking ahead of time prevents the conflict that comes later. Right. And, oh, and right. one other thing I would add is if you, because you've got two sons who are active in the business, make sure they have a buy sell agreement. Um, yeah, we do. Between themselves, because when siblings get involved in business with each other, um, there's a lot of potential, not today or tomorrow, but at some point in the future, um, that that can get very ugly. So make sure they have an open discussion and a buy-sell agreement that perhaps goes beyond your generation and, and looks to the future of the business when they are... Um, they are the sole owners and mm-hmm. one day one of them's going to want to retire or get bought out. And the best time to negotiate that is when you don't know which one is the one getting bought out. Yeah. Right. Right. Great. Well, thank you very much. Great thank conversation. You. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Jane, Susan. Thank you both. You were awesome. Really loved having you with us today. And again, tune in next week when uh, we'll have Courtney Pullen. And I'll actually, I'm going to be turning it over to Courtney to facilitate because I'm part of the family. So I'm kind of that in between. It'll be a really potentially very interesting conversation. I'm nervous and excited at the same time. So we'll see how that goes with my parents. Seems appropriate. (laughs) That's right. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. 
Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.